we have, we have the benefit of hindsight. Only children, I mean they mean no harm. I don't mean anything bad about children there. <laughs> we have the benefit of hindsight, clearly, but also attitudes towards children have changed in the time. But that cultural shift only extends so far, I think. There's still such a focus in our world today on status and achievement. Just this week, I, I caught myself in this. I was supposed to be in a meeting at work, and I'd been in one and was still sitting waiting for the second, and my boss said something along the lines of, David, do you think maybe you should go and work on something else? I, I wasn't needed for what was going to be discussed. As someone said so rightly afterwards, Elsa, in fact, said so rightly afterwards, that was, that was him valuing my time. That was him saying there are things that you can, you can do that would be beneficial to you, beneficial to the company. And so that was perfectly valid, but in my head there was still a real battle to overcome uh, this initial hurdle of I'm not important enough for this, and I want to be. And I think that is, that is a thought that comes into our heads probably more often than we would care to admit. I wonder, where else do we find these battles in our lives? Where might we need to take deliberate action? Because I believe it does take deliberate action to, to beat these thoughts. They are instinctual almost. And so where do we need to take deliberate action over the coming weeks to build these patterns of thinking which don't stop with ourselves, but are directed by this level of humility that we see in children? Secondly, I believe this is a call to real, deep trust and dependence on God. This is a picture of me and my nephew Samuel. Samuel is now six months old, as of yesterday. And as you'd expect at that age, he's not walking yet. But if you try and get him to have a nap when he doesn't want to, you'll learn that he does have incredibly strong legs. Because of that, he loves, as you can see in the photo, he loves being supported to be up on his feet. He is held there and then he kicks away at the floor and you can see him start to develop these walking patterns. One leg's going in front of the other and I think it's probably only a matter of time, although his parents probably hope slightly longer. Within this, though, he's learning another lesson which is of far greater depth and I would argue far greater importance because every so often, one of his legs will go to kick and support him, won't have the strength, and it'll buckle. But he never hits the floor. His parents always catch him. He is learning intrinsically, almost to the point of knowing absolutely that he will be caught. One commentator describes this level of dependence in this way. When we are children, we set out on a journey with no means of paying the fare and with no idea how to get to our journey's end. And yet it never enters our heads to doubt that our parents will bring us safely there. I love the phrase, it never enters our heads. I think when we talk about trust and dependence, that fairly often as adults, this can be a case of seeing that there is an issue and overcoming a psychological barrier to convince yourself almost on an intellectual level that the person you are depending on will follow through for you. It's almost a case of thinking through, well, this is the consequence, but I think this person can probably handle it. But this is completely different. This never entering our heads, the barrier is not even there. Going back to Samuel, he can experience the joy of learning, safe in the knowledge that mum and dad are always alongside him 
Do we have that level of dependence on God? I know I certainly don't yet. <laughs> and how do we cultivate that more and more? I, I was thinking this, and, I, and there are so many ways, and I'm sure that all of you will be able to come up with lots of ways, but among the many ways of doing this, I think sometimes there's just a need to, to step out and a need to go for it. Samuel could be told over and over again that his parents will be there and his parents will look after him. And that is true. But how does he know that? It's because they are and they do. And when he falls, they are there. And in a similar way, we grow hugely in trust for God and dependence on him when we are in positions when we are walking with him, alongside him, and there is a chance that we may fall. I think there are probably situations we can all think about in our lives now that we feel it is probably right for us to step out, but we are concerned to do so. Are there places, relationships, circumstances where God is stirring our heart to take positive action and all that remains is to go for it and trust that he's there? Finally, I think it can be easy within this discussion of living with true humility and complete dependence and trust to stray into thinking that this is synonymous with a lack of ambition. If we can have the next slide. If we are lowering ourselves in our own thinking and leaning wholly on God, does that mean we're not fulfilling our potential? But where this thinking breaks down, I think, is that this implies being passive. This implies letting God do the work. But Jesus never calls us to passivity. While doing some reading on this passage, I came across the suggestion that this is instead a call to step into true ambition. Ambition to serve, ambition to love, ambition to reflect the goodness, humility and generosity of Jesus who laid down his life for all. I want to leave us with the following question. Are we serving with humble ambition? What might this look like? I think individually the specifics will, will be different based on person and situation. But one thing that stood out to me is that if we do this truly, then that will permeate all of our relationships. If we are being ambitious about serving, that will mean being deliberate in all of our interactions. What a difference would it make if instead of being at work and working to pass the day, or instead of being in conversation with someone and waiting for your turn to speak, that instead all of these were framed in a thought of, how can I serve this person now? So that's the challenge I want to leave us with over this week. Are our interactions, are our relationships, are our situations driven by humble ambition. I'd love to finish just by praying for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that when thinking about this passage, that when we do feel like we have so much to learn and so far to grow, that we can look at this and see that you welcome the children into your arms and that you do catch us and you do walk with us. Lord God, I pray that you would stir our hearts and move our hearts this week to really open our eyes to the situations around us where we can serve deliberately 
being humble, lowering ourselves for others and for you, and trusting that you will be there walking alongside us, Lord. Amen. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well done. Okay, Elsa, come and join me. And let's pray for Elsa as well. Father, we ask again that you would come with your anointing, that you give clarity to Elsa as she speaks, that you'd uh, help her to speak with your uh, clarity and authority, and that our hearts would be ready to hear what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I had the, the opposite experience to David, where he was trying to talk, uh, think about what to talk about, and um, it came to me very quickly, because it's been on my mind um, all Christmas. And we've been thinking a lot about community in this church at the moment, which is wonderful. And I, I suspect a lot of you have had similar experiences to me of being at community events where you just feel so uh, confident this is how it is to live in the body of Christ. We had a, a wine and cheese an evening at Chris and Al's, which is a big part of what I think it is to be community. Um, but I think we're doing this in a really wise, biblical way, and I'm really excited to see where it goes. And then thinking about the wider church, and it might just be my age and my generation, but our romantic relationship seems to be the thing that's on everyone's mind with current talk about sexuality, um, a lot of my friends moving into thinking about getting married. And so these two relationships have been on my mind, but as much as they come from biblical wisdom, I've started to wonder whether we now read the Bible with these two things in mind. We're looking for uh, things like 1 Corinthians. When we read about love, we think about our romantic relationships. When we read about the body of Christ, we think about our communities. But today I want to talk about a sort of relationship that I think we might have forgotten a bit about, and that is friendship. And so we're going to look at friendship from two different angles. First, what the world tells us about our friendships, how we should conduct them, what importance they play in our lives. And then we're going to look at what the Bible thinks about friendship. And because I grew up in the Church of England, we're going to do this in three points each. <laughs> So what does the world think about friendship? I looked to kind of three different areas um, of how we get our impressions from the world to, to think of three conclusions about what it tells us about friendship. Um, so I started off with the news and with anything you scroll past on your phone. And I came to the conclusion that we really like an unlikely friendship. There's um, a picture of one here. Um, I put this into Google, unlikely friendships, and uh, the first result I came up with was 47 animal friendships. Uh, in a book on Amazon. Uh, the next thing I, I came to was a news headline that said, an unlikely friendship resulted when an African-American civil rights activist met a leader of the Ku Klux Klan to bridge their differences. And then I scrolled past probably hundreds of pictures like this, and uh, I came to a tweet from an American college student who has befriended an 81-year-old woman that lives about 500 miles away through an online game called Words with Friends. And um, this tweet had racked up a million likes. It's just, he's just one guy, but his friendship had really captured the hearts of lots of people. But I was kind of left with this feeling that we like them because they're kind of accidental and coincidental, and you get good friends kind of by accident. You hit it off with someone, and that's it. So whether you are an ostrich and a giraffe, or a college student and an 81-year-old, friendship comes by luck and by accident. And so then I looked to film and TV, and you might recognize this friendship trio. Um, it was a tie-up between this and a picture of the friends from the sitcom Friends. 
Um, but I was thinking about all the friendships that I watched growing up and how they formed my ideas of friendship. And this, this felt more comfortable than my, my unlikely friendships because they always were there for each other. Harry and Ron and Hermione, all their decisions seem to revolve around each other. If one has an idea, they all follow through with it. They back each other up, they're on their side. But then I started to feel uncomfortable again because I wondered, well, what if one of them made a bad decision? Do they still stick up for each other? What does it mean to be on someone's side? And finally, I looked um, to kind of popular culture and what my friend's expectation of friendship is. Uh, here's a picture. I promise you I am in it. Um, that pair of sunglasses at the back is me when I jumped to be in the picture and landed too late. Um, or too early, sorry. Um, this is me and my friends. I think it shows that friendship is limitless and surface level. We can have as many friends as we want and it's about going somewhere and having fun. It's about going to the beach, having a good time, posing for a photo and putting it on social media. I haven't spoken to anyone in this photo for three years. I met them for a week. We were volunteering together. We spent an afternoon on the beach. We took a photo, put it on social media. It took me about five minutes to remember everyone's name. And so this is why we need to turn to the Bible for our ideas of friendship. So keep these three images in mind, and I'm going to pair each one with a Bible passage so we can see perhaps God has a different intention for how we conduct our friendships. So firstly, the story of David and Jonathan. If you don't know it, I highly recommend reading it in 1 Samuel. Um, but the Bible passage is about to come up, and I'm just going to read you a couple of bits from it. Jonathan became one in spirit with David and loved him as his self. He made a covenant with David because he loved him. He took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. This friendship is not like the friendship with the ostrich and the giraffe. This is an intentional friendship. Jonathan has made a choice to step into that friendship and take a risk. He has given something over to his friend. He has become united with him. He has made that conscious commitment. It doesn't say they got on really well and hit it off. It doesn't say they shared interests. It says they loved each other. And I then looked at Proverbs, and the list was much longer than this when I sent it through um, for checking, but I've, I've narrowed it down so we can focus. Um, here are a few excerpts from Proverbs about friendship. A friend loves at all times. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Iron sharpens iron, as one man or one friend sharpens another. When we think back to Ron and Hermione standing on either side of Harry, they'll follow his every decision, good or bad. But in Proverbs, iron sharpens iron. Yes, we have our friends' best interests at heart. But as Christians, when we think about best interests, we're looking forward to a future in heaven. We're looking forward to kingdom-shaped people. Sometimes sticking up for your friends means iron sharpening iron. It means loving at all times. Loving when they make a choice. Loving when you talk about that choice. Loving when they carry it out. Loving when you look at the consequences. What does love mean in those situations? Sometimes it means iron sharpening iron. 
Uh, I've written in my notes, friends challenge and grow you. They have your best interests at heart. And sometimes that means they don't agree with you. Um, and finally, we're going to look at what Jesus said about friendship. This is um, in one of Jesus' final addresses to his disciples. He says, this is my commandment, that you love another as I have loved you. Greater love has none than this, but someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I made known to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And when we think back to that picture of me and my friends on a beach, I called them friends after a few short hours together. Jesus saves the word friends for those people that he has confided everything he knows to. What he has received on the Father, he has passed on to them. He is truly intimate with them. And he's reached a point of friendship with them where he would lay down his life for them. He doesn't keep his friends on the surface level. He has a deep commune with them. And obviously, Jesus is, as my favorite children's song says, my best friend. Jesus' levels of friendship are intimate, and he shares that communion with all of us. But in our heavenly ways, I think these three pictures and these three verses uh, teach us something about how our view of friendship is perhaps different to the modern view. So the world showed us that friendship's accidental, but the Bible says that they are intentional. The world says true friends are always on your side, but the Bible tells us to challenge that. Be on the side of their best interest, even if that doesn't mean what they want in that moment, but what you know God wants for them eternally. And where the world says we should have countless friends, Jesus says that we need to be truly intimate with them. Now, our, our language has changed the word friend to mean anyone we meet and get on with, and I don't want to change that, but what I want to do this morning is challenge us our romantic relationships, our community relationships, and our friendships, if we're blurring the lines between them, then we're expecting too much from people we meet straight away because we're calling them true friends, and we're not giving enough of ourselves to those covenant friendships like David and Jonathan. I um, have a lot of challenges in my life about what this looks like practically, but the reason I've chosen these three images and these three Bible verses is to challenge us to get the most out of all the relationships God's blessed us with by giving ourselves to them in the way that these three Bible verses encourage us to do. I think our communities will be blessed by covenant friendships, as will our romantic relationships, and our friendships will be blessed by being rooted in communities. Um, I think we're going to move into a ministry time now, but can I pray before we do, Andrew? Uh, Father, I thank you so much that you made us to live amongst other people. You made us to draw close to others. And we have the true privilege of calling Jesus our friend and saviour. And we recognise, Father, that um, we, are, we are weak and we are not able um, to serve people in the best way uh, that you have shown us. But may this morning we think about what it means to have true friends who we would lay down our lives for, and how those friendships will enrich our communities. Amen. David.
come back up again. And uh, one of the things I love to do is to train and release people, and uh, so that's part of this process. And uh, hopefully, many others will get opportunity to do this and other things uh, as the year goes on. So uh, be ready for action this year. So let's stand together, shall we? We're going to ask God to come and fill us, and if you're not used to doing this and you'd like to join in, then I'd encourage you, probably you find it most easy just to close your eyes and maybe just to put your hands out in front of you as if you're receiving a gift, because that's what God wants to give you this morning. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you'd come and fill us, that you clarify in our hearts what it is that you want us to take away from this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to have true humility in our relationships and our friendships and even in our acquaintances. But Jesus, we need you now. So we ask that you come and fill us. <clears throat>